Growing up, I was not a big fan of William Shakespeare. But I often find myself having read bits and pieces of his plays because it was mandatory. I often find that that these segments tend to, to, to replay in my mind. And so obviously there's some timelessness to his words. There's a line in the play As You Like It that says this. All the world's a stage and all men and women merely players. I began to think this week, is that true? Are we merely actors upon the stage of life, playing our roles? In ancient Greek theater, only men played the roles. They played all the roles, even the roles of women. And in order, they would would usually play multiple parts in the same performance. And so in order to make this happen, they would have a lot of wardrobe changes If they needed to be taller for a part, they'd just wear elevated shoes. But one of the big transformations that took place is that they would wear masks. They would have masks in front of their faces so that they could play the various parts, the various roles. One person may play four or five different parts in the same play. You really really never knew who was behind the mask. You were only supposed to see the person that the mass portrayed. The actors were called hypocrites. That's where we get our word, hypocrites. It was not a criticism. It was basically saying, this is an actor wearing a mask, playing a part on the stage. Perhaps William Shakespeare was more right than as a high school student, I would want to admit Does anybody really know the real you? Or do they know the mask? Do they know the part that you are playing, the role that you are in? Are you a different person in different situations? At home, at work, at school? At church? Are you a different woman in Bible study than you are at the salon? Are you a different man when you're hanging around with your buddies than you are when you're in your grace group? Are you a different teenager on Friday night than you are on Sunday morning? Jesus, you see, had compassion on sinners. He knew who we were, and he loved us. He loved those that were considered unlovable and touched those that were considered untouchable. Those who had both hearts and hands stained with sin found grace in his glance. But he had no compassion for religious hypocrites. In fact, his harshest words, as you go through the New Testament, his harshest words are reserved for the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were religious, those who put on a great show in front of everyone else. But but if you scrape below the surface, if if you got the paint off, there was something else underneath, a sinful heart. Jesus declared in Matthew 23, 
the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything is done for people to see. Now we take a step from that as the groundwork back to where we've been focusing our attention these last few weeks on the minor prophets. Today that prophet is Micah. Now we do not have time to fathom the depths of all of Micah's seven chapters. I do want to encourage you to read them this week. Works out very convenient. God planned this for you. Seven chapters, seven days in a week. That's one chapter a day. By the end of the week, you'll have read through Micah, and you'll have a little better understanding, a little better grasp of the entirety of his prophecy. But today, we want to consider who this man Micah is, the circumstances under which he prophesied, and and some of the message that he delivered. We know about Micah that it is a shortened form of the name Micaiah, which means who is like the Lord. That's his name. Who is like the Lord. And his, his actual words and his name blend together because in the seventh chapter of Micah, verse 18, he says, who is a God like you? His name blended into his message. Micah was from Moraseth, a small town in Judah, about 25 miles from Jerusalem. It would have been a a town of, of working class people, perhaps a lot like Greensboro, people who struggled to make ends meet day to day. His message Though he's from the southern kingdom, his message begins both for Israel and Judah, both for the northern and southern kingdom. But there's a transition in his message. The transition occurs probably at 722 B.C., and I'll tell you what happens then, because after that, his message is entirely for Judah. Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were the kings of Judah. Therefore, the broadest possible range, don't fill in the blank yet, the broadest possible range for the dates would be between 750 and 786 B.C. Don't fill in the dates yet. We know that at least part of his message was delivered prior to 722 B.C. because Micah prophecies the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel which happens in 722 B.C. when the nation of Assyria comes and sacks the city and sends the people off into exile. At that point, his prophecy transitions from being against both the northern and southern kingdoms to simply being uh, the southern kingdom, his, his homeland. Now, if we look at the dates and we give a best estimation, if you want to fill in the blanks now... The best estimation of Micah's prophecy is between 735 and 700 B.C. None of you are around to verify that, so just trust me. Now, there is no way that we can share all of what's in these seven chapters. And so I want to focus on 
the sixth chapter, the first eight verses. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with me. The words will be on the screen if you do not have them. Micah chapter 6, we're going to look together at verses 1 through 8. I'll give you a moment to find that. Chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Heavenly Father, help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The image, if you didn't catch it, was of a court scene as God calls creation itself to testify against his people. Unlike the court dramas that you see on TV or the ones that perhaps you've witnessed in, uh, in person, God plays three roles. That of the plaintiff, the one bringing the complaint. That of the prosecuting attorney, attorney, the one making the accusation. And that of the judge, the one who will deliver the sentence. The climax really begins in chapter 1. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, Because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? And what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It is spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Basically, what God is saying as he presents his case is that the people have been unfaithful. They've turned their backs on him and have instead created idols whom they have worshipped. 
They chose unrighteousness, and they did it right before the eyes of a righteous God, right under his nose, right in his face. Now, was this because God had been unfaithful? Was it because God had broken the covenant? No. We read earlier, God presents the evidence in chapter 6 of what he's done for his people. I delivered you out of Egypt. Took you out of slavery, out of bondage. I gave you leaders to guide you to the promised land. And I thwarted the plots that people had against you all along the way. God takes them back to the very beginning of their relationship with him. And he says, I have been faithful to fulfill the covenant every step of the way. I am the innocent party. I am the one who has been wronged. Now, here's the issue. When confronted with such a challenge, it should have led to remorse and repentance. Remember, we read uh, about Jonah and how as Jonah went through the streets, the people were struck in their hearts and they they turned away from their sin and, and they repented and they sought God. Well, That's what should have happened in Judah, but it didn't. Instead, what they did was to double down on their sacrifices and religious rituals. Somehow they felt that they could live any way that they wanted to, so long as they showed up for worship, paid their tithe, and offered their sacrifices. Micah asked on behalf of the people, almost sarcastically, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. In other words, I know that I'm living outside the will of God. So what's it going to take for me to get in his favor? How can I buy him off? How can I get back in God's good graces? How much stuff do I have to do? And as, and as Micah goes down the list, he gets more and more ridiculous. It begins all well enough with a burnt offering, a calf a year old. But then then it gets kind of exaggerated. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, even offering my firstborn. Basically what they're saying is this, I want my sin. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. I just want to know how much religious stuff I have to do to counterbalance my sin and selfishness. I'll pay whatever price so long as I don't have to abandon me, what I want. And when I read this, I'm struck at just how like Judah we are. I want to live my life my way. I want to choose whatever I want to choose and somehow find enough religious stuff to do to balance the scales. John Calvin wrote this. 
Hypocrites will hold nothing back provided that they do not have to devote themselves to God. If allowed to live in sin, they will give God all other things. They would offer even their own children but would not offer their hearts. God's chosen people were content to live as sinners while wearing the masks of saints, deluding themselves into believing that God would accept less than their whole hearts. They were tragically mistaken. And if you think that today, you are just as mistaken. So Micah responds. He responds to this attitude of the people who wanted to live in their sin and selfishness and just offer God religious platitudes. Micah says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This response is simple and straightforward, and we need to understand it. If we want to know what it is that God wants of us today. And so let's break it apart for a moment. He begins by saying to act justly. And this means to do what is right in our relationships with other people. In Micah's time, God had seen the dishonest scales. That means he had seen how they cheated one another in business practices. He had seen their abuse of power, how they plotted against the weak and unsuspecting, how they defrauded people out of their homes and their inheritance, how they lacked compassion for widows and orphans. He had seen their greed. He had seen their bribery. He had seen how one man treads upon another. And when he saw it, it stirred his anger. Let me ask you, do you believe God is any happier about those kinds of injustices today than he was then? No. This is what Jesus said. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do you believe God expects any less today than when Jesus spoke those words? We are to do right toward other people. We're not to cheat them. We're not to defraud them. We're not to swindle them. If you're an employee, you owe your boss a full day's work for a full day's pay. If you are an employer, you owe your employees a full day's pay for a full day's work. Don't skirt around the edges. Don't trim a little bit here and there. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Don't deceive. Be fair with people. I guess I better add this. Since tomorrow you have to send your taxes in the mail. Don't cheat there either. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We're told to do right to other people, to act justly. And Jesus echoes the words by saying, do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's what it means to act justly. The second thing that Micah says is to love mercy. And this means to have a lifestyle of showing loving kindness based on a changed heart. A lifestyle of showing loving kindness 
based on a changed heart. You see, it was not enough that people just treated one another the way they deserved. Because if God had done that for humanity, he would have wiped us away a long time ago. Instead, God is merciful. God is gracious. He does not always give us what we deserve. And sometimes, sometimes he gives us blessings beyond what we deserve. God responds this way out of a heart of love. And the call of Scripture is for your heart and my heart to be changed by the heart of God, by being in relationship with him, so that we too, with a changed heart, show loving kindness towards other people. Jesus echoes these words in Levit- of, that come straight out of Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're told, first of all, that we need to be fair with others. But secondly, we need to understand that we need to show love to others, which means sometimes we cut them some slack. Sometimes we give them better than they deserve. If you go to a restaurant, you typically leave a tip. And there's, depending on what calculations you use, uh, you could leave 10 or 15 or 20% sometimes on a tip. Sometimes if somebody does a really, really good job, you give them a little extra. Sometimes if they do a really, really poor job, uh, you, you give them a little less. Because you want to be fair. You want to you be just. And, and you go, well, that fits right in here. But sometimes you're out at a restaurant and your server's adequate. They refill your coffee. They, it's nothing special. They, they just do what they're supposed to do. And you'd be perfectly justified just to give them an average tip. But there are times, there are times when you look at that person and you know, I need to be gracious. I need to go the extra mile here. Here's a single mother. Here's a struggling family. And instead of 15% they may have deserved, I'm going to give 30. I know people who actually double their bill if they, their little bill was $8, they'll leave a tip of the same amount. Now, God doesn't say, you have to do this. But he does call us to live showing loving kindness to others. He does call us to live with a heart that's ready to respond to a need when it arises. It's not just about being fair. Sometimes it's about going the extra step to be more than fair, more than generous, more than gracious. Love your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. Finally, Micah says, walk humbly with your God. And this means to leave self and pride behind and to yield your life to God alone, to leave self and pride behind so that you can yield yourself completely and fully to the Lord. There is no part-time devotion. And there is no timeshare on the throne of God. 
Either he is Lord or you are. And for some of you today, you need to make that decision. You've been in kind of a timeshare arrangement with God on the throne. And when it's convenient, he can be God. Sunday morning. The rest of the week's mine. And I'll make my decisions and I'll do what I want and I'll have my own priorities. On Sunday morning, I'll get here by 1035. I'll sing a song. I'll pray a prayer. I'll listen to a message. And pastor, you better start wrapping the thing up by 1130 because I'm thinking about lunch. So God, I'm giving you an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes if I'm generous, but the rest of the week's mine. Now, nobody in their right mind would show up saying that. I hope not. But do we live that way? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, strength and mind. The problem that confronted Micah is the same problem that confronts our society today. People want to proclaim God as Lord, but live as if they are Lord. People want to display righteousness in their gifts, in their sacrifices, on, the, on their Sabbath, but then kind of shade their business practices during the week to profess a, a love for God, but display a love for sin. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah these words. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I'm going to ask your permission ahead of time, and then I'm going to assume you give it to me. Can I be honest with you? You see, God looks behind whatever mask we're wearing, whatever mask you came in wearing this morning. God sees beneath it all the way to the heart. What does he see? Not what other people see. Not what you want him to see. But when God removes the mask and scratches off the veneer, what does he find underneath? Are you an actor strutting about on the stage playing a role? Do you honor God with your lips? But is your heart cold and distant? Do you proclaim a love for him in your songs? But show a love for sin in your life? As we reflect on those questions, let me offer some insights that may help us as we apply this word to our hearts, these ancient words. First of all, be honest with yourself. And with God. Be honest with yourself and God. Quit lying to yourself. Quit lying to God. Again, I've used it over and over. I just think it's one of the most sadly comical passages in the scripture. As Adam and Eve have taken of the tree 
in the center of the garden. They've sinned and they know it and they're ashamed. And when they hear God walking through the garden, they go hide in the bushes as if somehow God can't find them. You do not want to play hide and seek with God. He wins. He knows where you are. More than that, he knows who you are. Perhaps today what you need most of all is to be honest with God about your heart. Secondly, remove the mask and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Don't make God strip it from you and don't make circumstances rip it from you. We know so often, we see it in the newspapers, people that we thought were fine, upstanding citizens, good Christians, and we find out that something in their life has been revealed and they are not the person that they showed themselves to be. Perhaps you need to make a physical act this morning and literally come before the cross and remove whatever mask that you're wearing and just lay it down and tell God, I am sorry for pretending. I want to be the same man, the same woman on Sunday morning that I am on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I want to be consistent. I don't want to be among those whom Jesus would have pointed out and said, you're a hypocrite. On the outside, you're, you're whitewashed, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're putting on a show. You're wearing a mask. You're strutting about on a stage. And today God has spoken to you and said, lay it down. Take off the mask and lay it down and let me work in you to make you into the man or woman that I created you to be. Third, do right to others. Once you have chosen that on your own you are going to be a man or a woman of integrity, then begin to do right to others. Quit cheating. Quit skirting around the edges. Quit giving less than you should to others. Do what's right. Beyond that, show mercy to those in need. Show mercy to those in need. And I've got to say, I I am humbled. I am humbled at what I see in the life of this church as people go beyond what is easy to help those who are in need. That's why men and women from this church family go to the jails. They don't have to go to the jails, but they go to the jails to share the love of God, to be merciful to those who are behind bars, who are men, most of whom are there for crimes they've committed. If we did only what was just, we might say, right there. But by being merciful, we go and show them love. We show mercy when we walk into a nursing home or a retirement home with a smile on our face, freely giving hugs and showing love to others. We show mercy. We show mercy when we minister to addicts. We show mercy when we love those and help those who are soon to be single mothers. We show mercy 
when we help someone who can't pay their bills, no matter how hard they've tried. May God, when he looks into our hearts, see mercy. And finally, walk in humility. Walk in humility with God and begin it today. Some of you need to reestablish a walk. You identified with Isaiah's words about lips that honor but hearts that are distant. And what you need to tell God quite honestly this morning is, I don't want to live there anymore. I want to move up really close to you. I mean, I want to sense your presence. I don't want to live distant to you anymore. And allow God then to restore you. Others of you need a relationship with him for the very first time. You've never given your heart to Christ. You've never made a decision of faith. You've come close. You've stood on that threshold. You're right on the edge, and all it would take is one simple step of faith, one acknowledgement, God, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. That's all it would take is just that one step, and yet something holds you back. Something keeps you from it. i got to tell you today, today is a day of salvation. That's what Scripture says. Today is a day of salvation. If you call upon the Lord, guess what? He will hear you, and he will save you. Call upon him for salvation today. Some of you need a church home, a place that not only teaches truth, but lives truth. And I will, I will tell you this, and I am not, I'm not trying to sell Grace Fellowship, but I want to tell you this. Of every church that I have been in, I can say that in this church there are more people of integrity when it comes to faith and action than I've seen anywhere else. That doesn't mean this church is full of perfect people. There are no perfect people. If you're a perfect person, please don't join us. You'll be, you'll be sorely disappointed. But what you will find here are people who do what's right to others. Who go the next mile to show mercy. And who walk humbly with their God. And if that's the kind of church you need, then I'd like to invite you to consider Grace Fellowship. If you need to physically come this morning and lay down a mask, maybe you've got a whole closet full of them, a different one for every day and every circumstance, and you just want to come down and lay those at the foot of the cross, then I invite you to do that this morning. Whatever it is the Lord calls you to do, will you do it? Let's pray.